The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last episode begins with the party reluctantly departing their perfect sanctuary, and almost instantly their luck turns. The very next day, Raydell spots something strange, a hobgoblin tied to a tree. On closer inspection, they see that it isn't just any hobgoblin, but the one Umora had charmed days before. Raydell makes sense of the scene by explaining that hobgoblin tribes are led by shamans, not brutes, and that this hobgoblin is probably undergoing some kind of ritual to cleanse him of what must seem to his fellows like a curse of madness. The party argues over how they should deal with it, Umura, who has a deep hatred for goblin kind, wants to hunt down and exterminate the whole tribe, while Harl, Eredin, and the two retainers wish to leave it alone and continue on the return to Thangar. Gyrios is torn, but ultimately sides with the majority. Umura dispatches the single creature and spends the rest of the day stewing in anger. The next two days see the party re-entering the mountains and ultimately reaching their destination, but Thangar seems even worse off than before. A meal at the dead troll with a pair of Heflin bards provides more information than they wanted. The tunnel breach that occurred weeks before has not been dealt with. In fact, more and more parties of soldiers have gone into the mines, and none have returned. Worse, there is a rumor that Ursulith Stonecarver has also disappeared into the mines. Harl goes to the palace where Ringlock confirms the story. Back in the tavern, he announces his intention to go after Ursulith, and Eredin, Gyrios, and even Umora will not let him go alone. The party bids farewell to Grumblebelly and Raydell, and makes for the mines. Chapter 55, Part 1, Day 70, Evening. Party status, Harl, 26 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 33 of 33. Eridine, 18 of 18. Umura, 23 of 23. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person, Shield, Levitate, Knock, and Lightning Bolt. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds, times two, Hold Person, and Bless. The main entrance to Thangar's famous silver mine was not difficult to find. In fact, it might be said without exaggeration that all roads in Thangar led there, since it was not only the cornerstone of the Citadel's economy, but also their identity. 
As evening darkened the walls outside, the party made their way inside the mountain. First, they moved through the laborers' district, with its apartments and workplaces. Every window was shuttered and every door closed. Now and then they heard the muted sounds of some smith at work within, but that was the only sign of life, at least until they reached the mushroom farms. Those caverns were bursting with fungal life. Mushrooms of every shape and color grew wild or in organized mounds of fertilizer in a vast array of interconnected caverns. The humans in the party gazed about in astonishment. Here, there was a thin violet spire of mushroom topped with a fleshy pink funnel. There was a cluster of fat, white-capped mushrooms, each as tall as Harl. A pungent smell filled these caverns that Eridine did not like, and she covered her mouth with her hand as they went. Harl, who enjoyed the smell, thought she must object to the odor of fertilizer, and so he was surprised when they left the mushroom farms and the young rogue took her hand away as they passed by the undermule stalls. They could hear the animals lowing, and the sound came as a small comfort. Eventually, they came to the mine's entrance. They had been using Umora's enchanted lantern to light their way, and the sorceress gave a little noise of surprise when its beam fell across it. Oh, well, that's comforting, she said sarcastically. You dwarves sometimes lack subtlety, if you don't mind my saying, Harl. A giant face carved in stone some thirty feet tall marked the way into the mine. A huge graven beard had been sculpted into steps that led into the wide open mouth of the entrance. We're supposed to go in there? Asked Gyrios, sounding unsure. This is very Elamor, said Harl in place of an answer, and then added, He was the founder of Thangar, you know. It was not a pleasant sensation, thought Umura, to walk up a beard and into an open mouth under a set of stone teeth. But she followed Harl as he did just that, leading them into a tunnel that Umura supposed must be the dwarven champion's throat. This was the upper mine, a maze of tunnels with well-trodden floors dimpled with the pressure of millions of dwarven feet. Many of the walls were scarred, the precious ore having been hauled away long, long ago. Some sections of tunnel had been left untouched. These were the stretches of rock that contained no metals. A few were dusted with sprays of twinkling quartz, and every now and then they passed a spot where a geometric sprouting of rock crystal seemed almost to burst from the wall. In the past, the biggest and most perfect of these had been enchanted by artificers, like Grumblebelly, so that they glowed softly white and illuminated parts of the tunnel. The whole place creaked and groaned with age, as though the mountain really was alive. Support struts made of timber complained of their unfathomable burden, and the depths rumbled, while little rockfalls could be heard down long, lonely passages. How deep are we right now, do you think? asked Gyrios. Harl frowned in momentary concentration and then shrugged. Nine hundred feet, better guess, he said. Gyrios wished he hadn't asked. Being this far from open sky made him feel claustrophobic. He tried, unsuccessfully, not to think of the immense weight of the rock over their heads. The feeling did not go away. In fact, it got considerably worse, for the tunnels continually sloped down and down and down. He didn't have to be a dwarf to be aware that they were descending quickly. Although Harl did not know the way, he seemed able to use a combination of intuition and clues to guide them. Umura noticed that he sometimes followed the path where there was the greatest evidence of past mining activity. It made sense that the main artery would be so. Still, she could not have done it alone, as the paths twisted and turned, branching off into a multitude of tributaries. She would have been hopelessly lost if it had not been for Harl. On and on they went, and deeper, and deeper. 
Still, the mind made its plaintive and forlorn sounds. The air grew cool, then cold, and Eridine threw her traveling cloak around her shoulders to keep warm. Harl turned around and scratched his bushy beard. There's something. He looked troubled. There's something not right. I can't put my finger on it. They carried on until Harl suddenly stopped. The ground, he said. The ground should be hard-packed dirt or stone, not loose like this. He towed some loose gravel to illustrate his meaning. Be on your guard. Some types of dolibril have been known to burrow underground in places like this to ambush their prey. Harl, maybe it's time that you told us whatever you know about the Amkeg, said Umura. If we're to face one, better to know what we're up against in advance, don't you think? Harl stopped and drew his axe. Yes, of course you are right, Umura. Here's what I can tell you about the Ankeg. Between the Lines Some dozen or so episodes ago, when I started thinking about what had happened in the mine of Thangar, I envisioned some kind of giant insect invasion, something that could burrow through stone as it built its colony and searched for food. I wanted a creature of about six to nine hit dice that would be a good challenge for a mid-level party and so I started paging through the basic and expert rule sets to find one. None of the giant beetle entries worked for me, and I'd used the fire beetle in an earlier encounter anyway. The expert rules provided me with the Cecilia, which I almost picked but ultimately rejected. While the stats seemed appropriate, the idea of giant worms was not doing it for me. I was looking for something like a terrifyingly huge armored centipede with a face mostly of crushing mandibles. Something like that. Then I remembered the Ankeg and found descriptions of it in the first monster manual and again in later editions of monster collections. Though not quite what I had in mind, the Ankeg lives in dirt under woods and fields, not rocks, for example, I decided to go with it, but I did make a number of changes. I'll post my modified version of the Ankeg on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com so you can read the complete revision there if you like. But you don't have to. Here's all you need to know. There are three types of Ankeg. Call them Dolibril, if you prefer the Dwarvish. They are Workers, Hunters, and the Queen. The Workers do the digging, tending of eggs, and preparation of food. They also double as soldiers, so these Ankeg are big, many reaching 20 feet long. They have short antennae, huge mandibles, a multitude of hook-tipped legs, and a thick chitinous armor of rusty reddish-brown. Next are the Hunters. These Ankeg are smaller than the Warriors, measuring 10 to 12 feet long. Their only job is to hunt for food for the rest of the colony. If you're already familiar with the various published versions of this monster that I'm working from, these are the Ankeg that burrow under the ground and lay in ambush. The hunters are different from the workers in a couple of other ways, too. They're yellow in color, for one, and their antenna is much, much longer. They also have smaller mandibles, but compensate for this by having a stinger that can paralyze their prey the way carrion crawlers can do. They prefer not to kill their prey, instead paralyzing it and bringing it back to the rest of the colony still alive. This way the kill will not go to rot. Also, if it's large enough, the queen might select it as a candidate for egg insertion. The special burrowing trait is not the only feature that I plucked from the book description. There is one other ability that Ankeg are known for, but I've decided to give it to the queen alone. Now, all Harl knows about the queen is that it's said to be very large and just how large he couldn't really say, since reports of them are both rare and unreliable. You might imagine that Harl is explaining all this to his companions as they carefully move deeper into the mines. 
Hey there, fine listeners. I'm Ken Brown, Game Master for the Rolling in the Geek podcast. I'm joining you today with an invitation for a place at our table to join Trevor the Cleric and Harkos the Monk as they discover the beauty and dark secrets of Riven, the Shattered Continent. Roll a perception check, subscribe to our website at ritgeekpodcast.com, and give us a listen on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred listening platform is. Thanks, and keep your eyes peeled for dragons. As you may have guessed, the companions have entered the part of the mine where Ursuleth found herself four days earlier. She was lost and starting to become very frightened when she was ambushed by one of the hunter type of Ankeg. The simple fact of this creature having found its way into the upper mines paints a pretty grim picture in general, if we're being honest. The party is about to have an encounter similar to hers, but let's hope for a better outcome. Instead of just one hunter ankeg, they will face two. Due to their sensitive antenna, the creatures cannot be surprised. The party can be, but since they are on their guard, I'll just roll a one in six chance for that to occur. A one on the die means they are surprised. The roll. A one, not good. They are caught off guard despite their efforts. That means the creatures will get one free round of attacks before initiative is even rolled. These Hunter Ankeg have an AC of four, three hit dice with 14 and 17 hit points. They each have two attacks but must choose to use one or the other. They can either bite for two to 12 points of damage or sting to paralyze. The paralysis is the same kind as the Carrion Crawler's ability. If the saving throw has failed, the paralysis will last two to eight turns. It can be cured by a cure light wound spell if one is available. Let's return to the story and see how this all plays out. Chapter 55, Part 2, Day 70, Night, Party Status. The party status is unchanged. And that's about all I can tell you. Carl concluded the description of the creatures he expected to face in the area ahead. Then they fell to silence and advanced with even greater caution. The tunnels continued to split off to either side and wind away into darkness. The three humans in the party felt fairly sure that they were still moving deeper into the mountain as well. The walls here contained partially mined ore. Abandoned miners' tools, picks, shovels, and baskets lay here and there on the gritty floor and leaned against the stone walls. Eridine marveled at all the colors in the rock. She hadn't much thought about it before, but she supposed she had expected to find only one kind of mineral in any one place. Silver in a silver mine, iron in an iron mine, and so on. She was surprised to see such a variety of color and such a mix of elements in the stone. As they had before, at irregular intervals, the companions passed by magnificent outcroppings of rock crystal glowing with their enchantments. When they were not present, Umura lifted the hood of her lantern further, trying to provide an appropriate amount of light. To the best of her ability, she focused the beam on the ground in front of them. They were all scanning for any visible disturbance in the loose dirt and rock. Knowing that something might be lurking beneath them was a strange thought and made every step an anxious one. 
Umura wondered if sailors felt this way when they found themselves in uncharted waters, exposed as they were in a vast ocean where some leviathan might at any time be passing beneath their boat, undetected. Worry finally got the better of her and she palmed the Owl of Thracendia in her free hand. Altenok. She whispered the command word to activate the charm, but nothing happened. It was during a stretch of tunnel devoid of crystal illumination that they saw the heap of gravel. It was not overly obvious, but it was there. Harl looked over his shoulder and nodded gravely, hefting his axe in readiness. But as they approached the heap, nothing moved beneath. Harl eventually kicked at it with his boot, but it seemed that there was nothing lying in wait below. Harl stepped right on top of it, ever ready with his axe. Still nothing. The dwarf then looked at the others and shrugged before carrying on in the same direction. They were marching in the following order. Harl, with Umura beside him, holding the lantern in front, with Gyrios and Eridine side by side, right behind them. It was when the latter two crested the gravel heap that the two hunter ankegs who had been waiting there in ambush burst from the ground. Millions of years of evolution had taught these creatures to lure their prey using a variety of tactics, and this fake mount was one of them. Instead of coming up from under the party, the giant insects burst out of the ground in front and behind, trapping their prey between them. Umora screamed, almost dropping her lantern in surprise as the horrible monster, a giant thing with two whip-like antennae and dozens of legs pedaling independently in the air, reared back and then surged toward them with impossible speed. party has been surprised by two hunter-type ankeg. These creatures always attack first with their stinger, which can cause paralysis on a successful hit. They'll alternate between their two attack styles round to round after that. Given that the hunters get a surprise round, it is possible that they will get to use both of their attacks before the party can even retaliate. Round 1. Surprise Round. As these creatures are essentially unintelligent, I'll determine their targets each round randomly. If an enemy becomes paralyzed, the hunter will choose a new target. Will the first hunter attack Harl or Umura? High-low on a d20. An 11. It attacks Harl. Because of Harl's new armor and improved AC, the hunter needs a 15 to hit him. A 10. That's a miss. Harl ducks just in time as the stinger darts over the space where his head had been a second before. The second hunter Ankeg will attack Gyrios or Eridine. Let's find out which one. High-low as before on a d20. A 14. Gyrios is the target. That might be very lucky or very, very unlucky, depending on how the next die roll goes. Keep in mind that Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times 2, and that spell can cure paralysis. The hunter will need a 14 to hit Gyrios' armor class. A 19. Gyrios is not as quick as Harl, and the needle-tipped stinger jabs him in the cheek. Now he needs to roll a saving throw, and he'll need a 12 to succeed. Ha! A 17. Gyrios manages to pull the stinger free just before the toxin can be injected. The stinking yellow venom oozes harmlessly over his hand instead. Round 2. Initiative. Let's see if the party's lock will hold. The party's roll. A 6. The hunter and kegs. Also a 6. Both sides are in the thick of it now and hack away at each other madly. I'll roll for the PCs first. Harl will need to roll an 11 or better to score a hit. His roll? A 3. That's no good. <laughs> Umura's up next. She's going to try to cast shield on herself this round. Now, if she is targeted and struck, the spell might be disrupted, but she tries anyway. 
As for Gyrios, he'll need a 12 or better to score a hit on his end kick. His roll. He also gets a 3. The new weapon is incredible, but he's just not used to it. It's Aridine's turn. She too needs to score a 12 or better to score a hit with her new weapon. She's rolled a 2. Her elven longsword clangs off the creature's shell, doing no damage at all. Boy, those were terrible rolls. I hope the monsters share the same bad luck. Let's find out if they do. Both will attack with their mandibles this round. Picking targets as before. High and high. That means they keep the same targets. It also means Umura's spell will not be disrupted, so the shield spell is successfully cast. The first hunter Ankeg attacks Harl. As before, it needs a 15 to hit him. A 9. The creature locks its jaws across his breastplate but cannot penetrate the Metzarium armor. Let go! The second hunter attacks Gyrios, and as before, it needs a 14 to hit. An 11 is a miss. Waving his mace wildly, Gyrios manages to fend it off. Ah. Round 3. Initiative. The party's roll. A 1. The hunter Ankegs. 2. Oh boy, here we go again. Paralyzing attacks. On. High and low. That's Harl and Aradine as targets this time. Harl is attacked. I've gotten an eight. Harl is ready for the stinger and bats it away with his axe. The hunter Ankeg that was attacking Gyrios now turns to Aradine. The stinger whips out. Another eight, another miss. Aradine is very quick and dodges the needle as it pistons towards her face. Now it's the party's turn. Harl swings away. Another terrible roll for Harl, he's gotten a two, and once again his blade bounces off the chitinous shell harmlessly. <coughs> Umora attacks with her dagger, there's not much else she can do. She needs a 16 to hit. A five is not even close, her dagger finds only air. <coughs> Gyrios will try again with his mace. A 19, that's a hit, finally. Four, five points of damage. Gyrios's mace smashes into the hunter's shell and there is a horrible cracking sound as it breaks. The monster is down to 12 hit points. Aridine tries again. 19, again! Aridine has decided to use two hands this time and puts all she's got into the swing. Eight points! Wow. In one swipe, she shears a dozen legs off one side of the thing. Blood and gore splashes everywhere. The monster now has only four hit points left. Round four. This round, the hunters will use their biting attack. Initiative. The party's roll. A five. The hunter Ankegs. A two. It looks like the party members have found some momentum. They press the attack. Harl needs an 11. Just a six. With the bug's face locked right up against his breastplate and shaking him, he just cannot score a hit. Stay still for a second. Umura tries again with her dagger. A 16. That's just enough. She gets her blade underneath the thing and stabs up. Sadly, she only does one point of damage. Gyrios tries again with his mace. A good roll, a 16. Having made a hole in the chitin, he manages to strike the same place. A three on the die, plus one for the enchantment on the mace is just enough to kill this beast. With a heavy thud and splat, it collapses on the tunnel floor, its remaining legs curling automatically into its body. Aridine is up. She's only rolled a nine. She turns around but stumbles on the dirt mound, causing her to miss her swing. There's one hunter left and it has three targets to choose from. It's staying on Harl. 
Once again, it needs a 15 to hit him. A 10 is another miss. It stupidly maintains its grip on his breastplate with the same result as before. Round 5. Initiative. The party's roll? A 5. The remaining Ankeg? A 1. This could be it. The party members have managed to surround it. Harl tries again. A 13. Finally, he manages to break free of the insect's grip and knocks it on the head for... 5 points. The Ankeg now has 8 hit points left. Umura tries with her dagger again. An 8. That's not good enough. Gyrio swings his mace. A 4. Another miss. As for Eridine, I'm going to allow her a backstab attempt. She'll get a plus 4, so she'll need to roll an 8 or better. A 13. Yes! Double damage with her longsword means... Mm, an 8! That's 16 points in one shot. While the monster is dazed by Harl's attack, she takes the opportunity and swings two-handed from behind, lopping off its head. The body thrashes around frantically, still alive until the last of its lifeblood spills out along with some translucent jelly and the creature expires, curling up into itself while the mandibles of the severed head continue to open and close for a few more seconds, unaware that it has been separated from the body. This combat is over. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show, there are now four ways to lend your support. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like or retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can toss me a buck and a half by purchasing my Rules Ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate and review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My sincere thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. Right now, I'd like to read a review from the Podbean app. This one is from The Lou Myers. Lou writes, Masterfully and meticulously executed, Tale of the Manticore delivers on its promised blend of old-school RPG gaming and dark fantasy storycraft. Interesting and realistic characters, original music, great guest voice acting, and an outstanding and perfectly paced story that leaves you craving the next episode. Thank you so much, The Lou Myers. I'm so glad that you're digging the show and look forward to the episodes. I'm also so happy that you mentioned the great guest voice actors that I've managed to attract. Their contribution to the story as a whole really cannot be overstated. For listeners who are curious to see little extras such as character sheets, maps, character portraits, show notes, and other errata, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Now that I'm a year and a half into the show, there's actually quite a lot of stuff there. For anyone who would like to get in touch, you can contact me on Twitter at ManticoreTale or on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The story will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Welcome to the advertisement for the Red Caps podcast, an advertisement where we dip our caps into the blood of a fellow podcaster's listeners and ramble on about old school games. If you think you'd enjoy short 10 to 15 minute tidbits about old school RPGs, occasionally some interviews, once in a while a product review delivered directly into your ear, then I need you to realize that no mortal can outrun a Red Cap. And instead, you should jump over to your favorite podcasting app of choice and search for the Red Caps podcast. You can also find us at www.theredcaps.net. Remember, never let your caps dry out, stay safe, have fun, and I hope to speak to you again soon.